Our gospel lesson is found in Matthew 7, reading verses 1 through 12. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do confess that you are merciful and gracious that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love in your son, Jesus. You have forgiven all of our iniquities. You have redeemed our life from the pit and crowned us with your steadfast love and mercy. And for that, we give you thanks. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes afresh to this portion of your scriptures. Teach us wonderfully beautiful things in this, your gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The movie Encanto follows a magical family called the Madrigals. They live in this magical house that they have called Casita. All members of the Madrigal family receive a magical gift when they turn five as a result of a miracle that saved their abuela, their grandmother, the matriarch of the family. One can speak to animals. Another controls the weather. One sister has superhuman strength, and the other creates beautiful flowers. On and on it goes to all members of the family, all save one, 15-year-old Mirabel, who receives no magical gift at all. She's profoundly ordinary, like you and like me. No magic whatsoever. But Mirabelle recognizes that something's odd with the family and with her casita. Cracks are forming in the house. Various members of the family are losing control of their magical gifts, and the magic seems to be slowly fading. Her abuela, the grandmother, believes nothing is wrong. She tells her that she just needs to move on. So, Mirabelle, like any other 15-year-old girl, disobeys. Right? She takes it on herself in an effort to save the family. 
to find out what's going on. She longs not just to save her family, but to save the town that their magic serves. Along the way, she, of course, accidentally steps on a few toes, ruining an engagement uh, and stepping on the toes, especially of her abuela. Towards the latter half of the movie, she and her sisters believe that they've discovered what's going on with the magic and how to fix it. As her abuela walks into the casita where they're all living, she and her sister are laying on a bed of flowers laughing. Colors everywhere. She jumps to her feet and she runs over to her abuela to give her the good news. And instead of receiving praise and joy and thanksgiving, she receives a scathing rebuke. Her abuela interrupts her ecstatic declaration saying, You have to stop, Mirabel. The cracks started because of you. Bruno left because of you. Luisa is losing her powers. Isabella's out of control because of you. I don't know why you weren't given a gift, but it's not an excuse to hurt this family. Crushing words. Crushing words to a 15-year-old girl who is actually trying to save the family. And with that unfair, hostile critique, the abuela not only ruined her relationship with her granddaughter, she became the destructive force that tore apart the very fiber of their family, and within minutes, the magic was gone. The casita had crumbled. The magic vanished. Friends, we too are prone to hasty and harsh judgments, just like the abuela. And here, Jesus confronts, and he warns us against that very kind of unfair, hostile critique in our interpersonal relationships with one another. He's not saying that we never make an evaluation. Verse 6 is itself an evaluation. There are some who are dogs and who are pigs, Dogs were not pets in their society. They didn't keep them at home and snuggle them in bed. And pigs you didn't eat on, at barbecues at Christ Church. They were defiled creatures. Dogs were more like rodents than they were pets. And so there is an evaluation. You don't give sacred things to dogs and to pigs, Jesus says. But Jesus is also concerned, just as as concerned with how you make an evaluation, as much as he is the evaluation itself. And the greater righteousness here that Jesus is inviting you and I into is a righteousness of humility that first looks at self and makes a self-evaluation. And if an evaluation is necessary, After we've made that self-evaluation, we can then move into a fair, humble assessment of others. And Jesus invites you and I into these flourishing relationships by contrasting a critical spirit and a humble heart. So we're going to see two things about each this morning. We're going to see the danger and the cause of a critical spirit, and we're going to see the basis or the foundation and the result of a humble heart. So first, we see in verses 1 and 2 the danger of a critical spirit. 
He says, judge not, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, the danger of a critical spirit is that we will be judged based on that same criticism. Jesus isn't saying that all evaluations are bad or that we ignore people's problems in the church. He's not telling us to be an ostrich and put our heads in the sand. But he is encouraging us that when we, we do so, he, or he's warning us that when we make these evaluations in an unfair, critical spirit, we are on particularly dangerous ground. Jesus doesn't specify if this is a horizontal danger or if it's a vertical danger, so it's likely both. Horizontally speaking, our experience of other people is in direct relationship to our posture towards those people. So when we approach someone to offer a critique in an unfair evaluation with a critical and hostile spirit, we are held to that same standard of evaluation. We see this all the time in our families. A few months ago, I was fussing at my middle child uh, for slamming a door. He likes to do that. And Maddie Grace, without missing a beat, she was probably walking by reading her book. She says, Daddy, you slam doors too. <laughs> right? Right? I'm held to that same standard that I am evaluating. A, criti a critical spirit is dangerous precisely because we will be held by others to that same standard of criticism. So when we offer an evaluation to our brothers and to our sisters... Let's be sure it's fair. Let's be sure it's generous. But then vertically speaking, Paul addresses something similar in Romans 2. Turn with me there if you have your Bibles. He says in Romans 2, verse 1 and 3, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Critical spirit is dangerous because oftentimes the things that we criticize, we practice ourselves. And in that criticism, we condemn ourselves by that criticism. God will make an evaluation of us, but the question is, on what basis? And this instruction is akin to one of Jesus' parables in Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. There we see a servant whose mountainous debt had been forgiven by his master, but who refuses to forgive a very small debt of a fellow servant. What happens? The master deals harshly with this unforgiving servant. You see, we're all fellow servants. Each one of us, fellow servants of the one forgiving master who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so in his economy, there is no room for a critical spirit and an unfair evaluation of others. So when we approach others with that critical spirit, we are on dangerous terrain because we will be held 
by the same standard which we evaluate. Then second, we see the cause of that critical spirit in verses 3 to 6. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus shares a carpenter's illustration to illuminate the cause of a critical spirit. You can hear the absurdity, right? You can hear the absurdity in the illustration itself. Trying to address a speck of sawdust in someone's eye when you have a beam sticking out of your face. It's insane. It's irrational. The amount of pride that's required to totally ignore our own problems in favor of casting judgment on someone else is astonishing. And Jesus tells us that the cause of that critical spirit is a prideful lack of self-awareness and self-reflection. We don't even see the beam. We don't even recognize that it's there. So we pay attention to others and to their faults. We create a hierarchy of problems that need to be addressed. And our own problems, conveniently, are at the bottom of that hierarchy. So we are free. We feel free to cast judgments, to ignore our own problems. But when we forget that we are all on the same playing field with God, we will harbor that critical spirit because we believe we are beyond God's critique. But friends, we are not beyond God's critique. Many years ago, when I was in college, I was involved in a large college ministry. Uh, and the leader of this ministry at the time was charismatic. He was successful. He was really dynamic up front, really demanding in his relationships. But those relationships were strained. He was brash and abrasive and cynical when you were at odds with him. And I experienced that cynicism. One day, I was offered an opportunity to work with a local church uh, in my college town doing their college ministry. Now, I ended up not taking that position, which was a really wise decision on my part. How can a college student do college ministry uh, for a church? But when I approached my friend about the offer I'd been given, he was dismissive. He was hostile. He, stor- he stormed off in a rage made it a little bit more awkward was I lived with him. So he just stormed down the hall. So I let him cool off. Came back to him a little later and just asked why, why he was so offended. And he responded like this. You chose them over us. I was like, what? Them over us? Aren't we on the same team? Like team Jesus, right? Them over us. I hadn't actually made a decision yet. I was coming to my friend for advice, but he made an unfair judgment. He made an evaluation of me in the situation that was cynical, was unfair. And years later, as this guy was now in charge of multiple staff in the region, many of those staff one day came to the board of directors and essentially said with a letter, him or us? 
My friend's story illustrates our first two points. When he had an evaluation of someone, he came to them with cynicism, with a critical spirit. And oftentimes that evaluation was unfair. His standard was them or us. He was so blinded by his pride that he couldn't see his own problems. He couldn't see that he was creating a culture of distrust and cynicism. A culture that would inevitably be his downfall. He believed his problems were at the bottom of the, of the hierarchy. Forgetting that we're all on the same plane. That we have all fallen short of God's grace and we are all in desperate need of him. In desperate need of his grace. And it's because of this danger and cause of a critical heart that we all need to be doing the hard work of self-reflection, of self-evaluation, taking the log or the speck out of our own eyes before we can make an evaluation of our brothers and our sisters, before we can determine if someone is a dog or even a pig. So how do we become self-aware? How do we do that hard work of self-reflection? How do we take out the log in our eye so that we can see clearly to address our brother's speck? The answer is in the second half of our text. And we'll, he- we'll see here the foundation and the results of a humble heart. So first we see the foundation of a humble heart in verses 7 through 11. Jesus says in his sermon, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you? If his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a servant. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask of him? At first, this seems a bit like a hard shift, right? A little, a little disjointed, maybe wondering how does prayer, asking, seeking, and knocking, how does that relate to a critical spirit or a humble heart? What we see here is that Jesus encourages us to reflect on the fatherly care of an infinitely gracious God. And it's that fatherly care that fatherly care of the creator that melts our prideful, self-deceived hearts and it shapes us into humble people. He uses three terms, ask, seek, and knock, to describe how sons and daughters are to relate to their father, to make requests. And this merciful father is one who gives when his children ask. He's one who is found when we seek after him. He is one who opens the door in love to those who knock. And the emphasis is not on us doing the right thing as if we are asking appropriately or seeking rightly or knocking the right number of times. But the emphasis is on the character of the one being addressed. The character of a heavenly father who gives good gifts to his children who ask him. As our psalm said this morning, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And he shows compassion to us, not because there's something special in us, 
Not because there's something good in you. Not because you've done all the right things and you've earned his love. Not because you said, God, I want to be adopted and I've done all of these good things, so now adopt me. He has adopted you through Jesus. Jesus is a son by right. You and I are sons and daughters by adoption because God chose, not you chose, but God chose to make you his own. God chose from eternity past to set his love on you in Jesus. Not because you're great, but because he's great and because he is kind. And it's when we recognize that reality that we have nothing to offer to him, but he offers us everything. It's recognizing that that shapes us into humble people, that allows us to take out the log in our own eye in order to address the speck in our brother and sister. So the foundation of a humble heart is the recognition that God stoops down in humility to make you his child and to offer you all that belongs to him. And it's that childlike posture towards an infinitely gracious heavenly father that becomes the foundation of a humble heart that then is able to address the problems of those around us in humility and with tons of patience. And then finally, we see the result of a humble heart in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This phrase from Jesus is often called the golden rule, but it's far more than just a mere rule. It's not just a rule for life, it's the climactic summary of a life lived in proper orientation to God and to others. A life lived in gratitude to God for his steadfast love and his mercy in Jesus is a life of love towards others, doing to others as we would have them do to us. This is Jesus' sermonic way of stating the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But remember, that second commandment comes after the first. Love the Lord your God. We have to get those things in proper order. And so the golden rule is what it means to live life well, to recognize that God has dealt bountifully with us, and then to move out towards others in a humble, loving posture. This is a life of human flourishing that Jesus is inviting each one of us to As we recognize God's merciful posture towards us, we can be merciful and humble towards our brothers. So the result of a humble heart is a life of love, a life of flourishing. And sometimes that love requires we make an evaluation of the problems of others. But we do so not with cynicism, not with a critical spirit, but rather in humility And gratitude to God for addressing our problems in humility. At the very end of Encanto, Abuela recognizes her contribution to the breakdown of the family. In humility, she becomes self-reflective, even repentant. She looks at the log in her own eye and she says to Mirabel, I was given a miracle, a second chance And I was afraid to lose it. I was so afraid that I lost sight of who our miracle was for. You never hurt our family, Mirabelle. 
we are broken because of me. And it's through that self-reflection, through that humility and repentance that the family is restored, that the casita is rebuilt and the magic returns. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is shaping a new community, inviting you into relationships that are full of flourishing and humility. And in this portion of the sermon, Jesus challenges us with the way we deal with each other, the way we interact with one another. We don't address problems in the church with a critical spirit, but instead we humble ourselves before an infinitely humble God. And it's in that humility that we can be self-reflective, facing the man in the mirror, addressing our own problems first, and then with humility we address one another in love doing to others as we would desire they do to us. Let's ask God for his help and trust him to give the good gifts to support us. Almighty God, we do humble ourselves before you this morning. As we come in and through your son, Jesus, we recognize that in ourselves we are not worthy to be called your sons and your daughters. But because of Jesus, because he is a son by right, we have been adopted into your family. You have chosen us in him. From before the foundations of the world, you have set your love on us because of him. Would you teach us, Lord? Teach us to be humble people. Give us the grace to accept your invitation into the greater righteous life of human flourishing in relationships, living humble lives. And hear us this morning as we call to you, as we ask you, as we seek you, as we knock. Open the door and answer our prayers. Let's join our hearts together this morning in silent prayer for the following concerns. <clears throat> 